thanks to uh, Gordon for teaching, of course, and they are gone this week and uh, next week also. So I'm just going to fill in, and what I'm filling in in doing is uh, trying to finish my alphabet series, and I'm down to X, Y, Z. That makes it tough, you know. When uh, you try to think of uh, words that begin with X, Y, and Z and, and finish it out. But I'm going to do X and Y uh, this week and next week. And I hope that it's, it's helpful or interesting. And uh, we'll add these to the, to the list that we have online also. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 17, where we have the story of Paul on Mars Hill. And let me read a familiar verse to you as Paul starts his sermon on Mars Hill. How many of you have been to Athens? Have you been to this place? Probably the, the place that I'm going to read here. If you've been to Athens, you've probably been here. This would be Mars Hill. There's, if you go up to that Acropolis where the Parthenon is standing on top and, and all, you'll come to Mars Hill. And uh, it's kind of interesting because even today there's a bronze plaque in the stone on the level place they called Areopagus or Mars Hill. And Paul's sermon in Greek, of course, is still there. Uh, so Paul's still preaching on, Mar on Mars Hill to this day, if anyone will ever stop and read it anyway. So um, you have, the, you have that uh, name in verse 19, Areopagus. And then in verse 22, he stood in the midst of Mars Hill. So that's what Areopagus means. In verse 22, he says, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. And so he's going to take advantage of that. He says, Whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now, if you know this sermon and you know what Paul's doing here, he will uh, then, by the time he gets to the end of this, verse 31 even, uh, says, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he raised him from the dead. Of course, so he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to remind you that we... We worship ignorantly unless we worship God through Jesus Christ. Now, don't take the word ignorantly as some kind of a, a, a slang toward somebody. It just means you don't know. Uh, you know, knowledge, K-N-O-W, gnosis in Greek, and you put an I in front of it, and, you know, you have no knowledge. You don't know. And so Paul isn't calling them names here. Today, you know, you might be thrown in jail for, uh, you know, slander or something. But uh, he's just saying you are worshiping, but you don't, you don't have full knowledge about it. You don't know what you're worshiping. And so he, he uh, shows them that you have to worship God in the proper way, the way God has ordained, and that's through Jesus Christ. The Athenians worship Zeus, Hermes, Apollos, all the... Uh, pantheon of Greek gods, uh, Nike, 
and uh, her twin sister, uh, Dickie, Nikki and Dickie, victory and vengeance. I mean, all of, all of these gods, and as you're standing there on Mars Hill, behind you, the hill rises up to the top, and you've seen that picture of the Parthenon, the columns, you know, standing on the top of it. So here they are, and all, and all around that uh, Parthenon are all of these shrines to this god, to that god. To that. So Paul's standing in the midst of all of this anyway. And, of course, the, these are the uh, intelligentsia of the day. I mean, this is like going to uh, the Harvard University, the Oxford uh, University of the world at that time, and saying, you're all ignorant about what, you know about what you're doing. And so he was pretty bold in, in doing it. But, folks, the sad thing is that the whole world is then uh, in ignorance too, aren't they? And... and the world looks at us when we say something like that and says, well, who are you to, to say such a thing like that? How presumptuous are you? But on the authority of God's word and by what God wrote and what Paul preached uh, back then so long ago, if you do not come to God through Jesus Christ, you are worshiping ignorantly. You just don't know. And so a religion that is prominent today, Islam, uh, you know, since Paul says here in verse 31, God proved that you have to worship through Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. The gospel is, of course, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how God proved that he's the one you worship God through. And so here is Islam and other world religions who claim that Jesus didn't even die on the cross, much less did he come out of the grave. Because if you allow that fact to be established, that he resurrected, then you've got to worship God that way. <laughs> you've got to accept the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So, and, so you stay away from that at all costs, but then you end up ignorantly worshiping. And that's what you have today. So you, can't, you can call God by uh, any other name, like Allah or whatever you want. But if you don't come to him through Jesus Christ, you are ignorantly worshiping. And you know what? Uh, in the history of Christianity, there's been enough of that, too. In the history of Christianity, there is what I would call cathedral worship. And I, I've been in various places of the world looking at some of the most beautiful Christian cathedrals. Uh, I've not been to Rome and seen St. Paul's there and St. Peter's, but, but I've been to a lot of others in, in uh, various different countries, uh, from Turkey and the oldest churches to England and, uh, you know, to America. And you know how it is. You can walk into these, these beautiful cathedrals. Westminster Abbey is the most spectacular structure you ever saw in your life. It just rises up into the sky and all of the ornateness. And it was built in 1000 A.D. That, that thing's been standing there over 1,000 years, and it's still one of the most beautiful structures in the world. And yet I think to myself how, how much ignorant worship has been going on even in places that profess to know Christ as Savior. So there is a lot of that. The Russian Orthodox churches and the, and the Catholic churches around the world and so forth. So we have enough of it. And, of course, I, I believe that, that America, in casting off true Christianity, it, even evangelicalism is turning to their own cathedrals. And rather than having those 
high-rising cathedrals with the stained glass and the incense and all of that. We just have electronic screens that rise to the sky. And worshiping worship is a good thing to do. You know, it makes everybody feel good. Uh, you clap your hands and roll your eyes back in your head and go away happy, uh, you know. And uh, if you don't like it there, you can go to some concert downtown and get the same, same sensation. Well, I'm, I don't intend to go that, down that path too far. I want to talk to you about Christos, and that's why I'm using the letter X as we talk about the proper way to come to God today must be through Christ, through Jesus Christ. Well, in, and, I, and I'm going to talk next week about why Yahweh and why we're talking about Jesus who is the Christ today, and we'll talk about Jesus who is Yahweh next week, X and Y. And it's important for us to know these details and refresh our thinking about these things because the world must worship God through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord uh, of glory. And we must know that and be able to profess that and give testimony of that in this, in this world in which we live. So we'll do that. I, I want to start by uh, reading a, a few things that, that men wrote that you've heard some of these. And, and this is how important it is. C.S. Lewis, uh, now, you know, uh, 50 years ago, he died 50, 50 years ago, 63, but, uh, you know, very prominent in the 20th century. And you remember a book that he wrote called Mere Christianity, where he is basically saying he, he had to come out of his atheism in Oxford University, Magdalen College in Oxford, and become a Christian because he couldn't deny the facts any longer, basically, is what he's saying. So he says, a man, speaking of Christ, he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Now, let me stop and say what he's arguing for in the book is, we, we say, well, we like Jesus, and he was a great man. And he taught many good things uh, like Gandhi taught or, you know, Buddha taught or whoever. He was a great man. And, and that's how Lewis took him for a long time as an atheist. Okay, he's a great moral teacher. He, he taught a lot of good things. So now as a Christian, he's saying anybody who says the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. In other words, you don't, you don't walk around saying you are God if you're a normal person, right? You don't walk around saying, uh, commanding demons to do this or that. You don't walk around saying you existed from eternity past to eternity future. If you met a man who was saying those kinds of things, what would you think of him? You're a lunatic. And so don't, don't call him a great moral teacher if he walks around saying things like that. He is either a lunatic 
or he is who he says he is. And there's only one man who has said such things, and if that's what he is, then he must be God. And so Lewis is saying, I had to come to that conclusion. I had to come to the conclusion that he is who he said he was. I always just thought he was some kind of off-the-wall teacher, <laughs> you know. Uh, I have a very similar quote from G.K. Chesterton 50 years before that. I'm not going to read it. It's a long paragraph. But basically, Chesterton said the same thing. Uh, he was an earlier English man, much like, uh, much like Lewis. Alistair McGrath, a British guy, also said, in the Apostles' Creed, stating that Jesus is the Son of God amounts to saying that Jesus is God. If Jesus were just another human being, a creature like the rest of us, the New Testament writers would be guilty of worshiping a creature. But they're worshiping a God. And Robert Ketchum, who is a good Baptist of our generation, he's, he's with the Lord now, said, Here then is his status. If he were not God, he was a blasphemous liar aided and abetted by the denizens of hell. And he was exactly what the critics of his own day said he was, possessed with demons. He gives the reference to Mark 3.22, which is my text for this morning's message later. There it stands. Let the critics of the day be honest. Either Jesus was God or he was a devil. He was the God-man. Uh, he was the God-man or he was not a good man. And uh, William Shedd in his theology summarized it by saying, Christ is humanized deity, not deified humanity. That's an important distinction. That's why we call him the God-man and not the man-God. All right? Well, we could go on and on. I've collected, I've collected statements like that for years and have them. But remember that we're talking about a name that is above every name, and we must be careful with that. Uh, I'm going to talk about blaspheming the name of God. James 5, remember when he speaks about the rich people, he says, do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? Uh, and yet we worship the world and their view of everything, and yet they blaspheme the very name by which we are called. Let me talk to you about the name by which we're called. Um, I don't uh, have the, the nice overheads that, that Gordon is good about using, but I'm going to ask you to picture these things. Uh, I handed you my card. So, oh, um, there's two more, right on my, uh, Randy, come here, because I want you to have it. If I were running for public office, this would be my, uh, this would be my campaign right here. <laughs> um, but the reason I want you to have this is I, this is my card. I, I print it off. Of course, you can make your own calling cards. You put these on card stock when you do it, you know. But so this is just on paper. But I wanted you to see the, the fish, the ichthus. Although you see the name there in Greek, but I didn't put the little fish around it. Sometimes you see a fish, you know, around that word ichthus. Okay? And that's true. The word ichthus uh, is the word for fish in Greek. I mean, that, that was the word they used. Uh, you have an I, then a a chi, which is actually a ch, that's the x, and that's the one we're going to talk about. Then a theta is a th, so you have ichthus, and then a u and an s. I know they don't look like that when you're looking at their letters. So they use this 
term fish as kind of a code word in times of persecution they could pass it back and forth and if you kind of use the emblem of the fish or the word ichthus to a non-believer somebody who ignorantly worships that didn't mean anything to them but it uniquely had these letters in it each of which stands for another designation about Jesus Christ so below that word I have those words. Jesus is Jesus, very similar to the Spanish. So the I in the, in the word ichthus is for Jesus or Jesus in Greek, like it is in other languages. Then the chi, the X, is for Christ because we're going to talk about this morning Christos, C-H, R-I-S-T-O-S, or in Greek, X, or Chi, R-I-S-T, okay? So you have Jesus Christ, then you have Theta, which is Theos. You, remember, you know how we talk about theology, Theos being God. Uh, so the middle letter there, it, these are capital letters. If you put them in smaller letters, maybe they look more familiar. But um, So that's the word for God. And then the next one is a Y, and it's funny, in Greek it's pronounced weos. It's U-I-O-S with a breathing sound, so it's huios, they call it. That's the word for son. So weos is son, it begins with that letter. And then the last one is a capital sigma. Um, in the small letter it looks just like our sigma, our S. And that's, and soter is Savior. So soteriology is a study of salvation or the Savior. So when you say ichthus, when you say the word fish, if you took all those letters individually, well, you could mean, and notice in, on my card, I put some smaller letters to tie them together. Jesus Christ is God's Son and our Savior. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So that's what ichthus means. So when you see it on a bumper sticker or something sometime, uh, you know, praise the Lord. You, ha, have you seen the one that, that, that has Darwin in it, though? Have you seen that? So, so it has the fish, and then it has two little legs below it, and instead of ichthus in the middle, it says Darwin, I think, right? It has his name, Darwin. In it. I'm going to talk about in the next hour blasphemy. And one of the definitions for blasphemy is attributing the works of God to a creature. If you are saying that God is not the creator of the world, as Darwin said, then that emblem is blasphemous, according to any standard definition of blasphemy, attributing to God either something that doesn't belong to him, like uh, being a creature himself, or saying that his works uh, are actually somebody else's works. So, anyway, so what I, I handed you this so you'd see that fish, but the, also, so we're going to talk about here in the time we have remaining, the, the word Christos and where it comes from and why we have it, why it begins with X. And so, you know, 
none of us kind of like it when we come to Christmas time and we see Xmas, do we? It doesn't sit well with us. But keep in mind that the X did stand for Christ to the early Christians because it was a chi. I mean, we, I guess we think of X as Xing something out, you know, or we don't like it anymore. But actually, chi would stand for Christ as it did in the word fish and so forth. I don't like the mass part of it more, more than I don't like the X part of it. You know, uh, I don't like the mass, but that we get that from our Catholic friends. So, uh, so, so don't be upset when you see Christ referred to with the chi, with the X. It, it's X in our English. It's chi. All right. So I've got four words to give you. This would have been good to hand these out to you. But if you want to write on these. I'll spell these for you. I have them written in Greek in front of me, but, but uh, I'll spell it for you. Creo would be spelled C-H-R-I-O with a long sound over the O. C-H-R-I-O, Creo. Creo means to anoint. And uh, where we ha- that's a verb. You, when, when you hear me or hear someone define a Greek word, and it has that long O ending, that's a first-person singular, and so it's a, it's a verb. But we have it, for example, in Exodus 29, 7, where God says to Moses about Aaron, who's going to be the high priest, then shalt thou take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him, creo him. So Aaron became the high priest, because he was anointed, and they did that with the oil, you know, poured it on his head. Uh, Remember Psalm 133 that begins this way? Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and went down to the skirts of his garment. I mean, when they anointed his head... It wasn't just with a few drops of somebody, you know, uh, Aunt uh, Olga's olive oil. It was, it was pouring it on his head, and it ran down and went clear to his feet. So they anointed him, and he became the high priest. And then when someone else took office in Israel, that was what they did. You remember Samuel heading out to Jesse's house to anoint the next king, and he's looking for David uh, to anoint him. And later in the 23rd Psalm, David would say, thou anointest my head with oil. You know, I, uh, I am your king. So, uh, so that, that word creo means that. Now, you remember, you remember when Jesus then came to Israel and he waited till he was 30 years old. And about being about 30 years old, he comes to John the Baptist and John baptizes him and uh, you have that uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then he leaves John. He goes right up almost directly back to uh, Nazareth where he grew up. So you have in Luke chapter 4, for example, in the early verses, he's getting baptized. And then right away he goes back to Nazareth. He walks into the synagogue, a room just like we're in here with a podium and He's allowed to speak, and so he gets up and he opens his Bible to, to Isaiah 61.1. I'm going to read from Luke 4.18, because Luke is quoting this. And Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me 
to preach the gospel. Now, maybe we, maybe we should take a moment. We'll slow down here and go back to Isaiah 61. Just, uh, just briefly, if you go back to Isaiah 61 and you, and you back up into chapter 60 and come through into chapter 61, what you have is a prophecy of the return of God to the earth when God will come and he will rescue his people. The Lord will come. And uh, so uh, in the middle of, of chapter 60, verse 19, you'll see, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light and thy God, thy glory, verse 19. Verse 20 of the previous chapter in the middle, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light. And so when you get to Isaiah 61, here is the Lord who is the Messiah who will one day come to Israel speaking and saying, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because, he hath an, because the Lord hath anointed me. You see, when, Ju when the Jews' Messiah comes, he will be the anointed of God. Isaiah said it. And he has anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all that mourn. And he goes on and on. Now, Jesus, what, what we have recorded by Luke is that Jesus comes into the synagogue. He opens the book to that place and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to do these things, he closes the book and sits down and everyone in the room is, what did we just hear? What did he just say? He said blasphemous words, folks, unless it's true. Because he claimed to be that Messiah. He claimed to be that Lord of the Old Testament. Now, when a Jew hears this, He's faced with a dilemma, and that is, what do you do with people who have blasphemed? I'm going to read it in my message next hour. You stone them to death. That kind of blasphemy t gets the death penalty in the Old Testament. So you know what they do in the rest of Luke chapter 4? Do you remember? They take Jesus up out of the synagogue. They go up to the brow of the hill because Nazareth is on the edge of the, of the uh, Estralon Valley, the Valley of Megiddo, and it's a cliff that goes over into the valley. So they take Jesus up to the edge of the cliff, and they're going to throw him over. And why? For blasphemy. Because he claimed to be the one in, in Isaiah that said, I'm the anointed of God. And Jesus, knowing that that's not the way he's going to die, that's not why he came to the earth, just miraculously leaves them and walks out of the midst and they're and they're gone it's kind of like you see in the movies you know i got a hold of this guy and all of a sudden he disappears and you go where'd he go where'd he go you know he just walks away well that is the anointing now um the word anointed or to anoint is used once of christians and I'll explain it further, but it's in 2 Corinthians 1.21 where Paul ends this chapter by saying, Now he which establishes us with you in Christ 
and hath anointed us is God. God has anointed us. Hmm, how is that? Well, let's go to the second word. So you have the word creo, and then you have the word chrisma, which is C-H-R-I-S-M-A, chrisma. And this literally means anointing, the anointing, in other words. And we have it in 1 John 2.20 and 2.27, where it speaks of us having the anointing. Now, remember, 2 Corinthians 1.21, God has anointed us. So in 1 John 2.20, in the, in the older version, the King James Version has, you have an unction from the Holy One. That's the word charisma, and it means you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you, need, and you know all things. And then in verse 27, the same word, but the anointing which you have received. Now, rather than calling it an unction, calls it anointing, same Greek word. But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you. What is it that abides in you? What is it that abides in you? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the anointing that God has given us. Now, uh, this is also called, in other terms, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. That baptism began at Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost when the believers were there and they're waiting, Jesus said, you wait in Jerusalem until you're anointed from on high, the Holy Spirit will come and do this. And so they're sitting in, in that room, 120 of them, and the sound that sounds like a wind coming through all of a sudden comes upon them and they see visually it looks like flames of fire on each person's head. And then they learn that the Holy Spirit now has come and taken them and anointed them, but basically making them into a church, into the church of Jesus Christ. Now, that happened first at Pentecost. The Old Testament saints didn't get this. There was anointing, like for the priest and the king and so forth, but not the anointing of the Holy Spirit to place you into the body of Christ. That's why we say the church started at Pentecost. And the church started at Pentecost by us being anointed by the Holy Spirit or literally indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's where it all began. And by the way, being in the church then is not just being saved because Old Testament saints were saved, but they were not in the church. It's having the baptism of the Holy Spirit that puts you in the church. So we believe our Baptist theology is, and not just Baptist, but many others understand, that the, the, the moment you got saved, when you received Christ as Savior, at that very moment, the Holy Spirit came in and took up residence in you. He regenerated you. He lives in you. He baptized you, if you will, into the body of Christ, and you became part of Christ at that time. You are the anointed of God. Now, we disagree with our Pentecostal friends when they say, well, you get saved on one day, and then some later day, when you pray through or do whatever you should do, maybe speak in tongues or something like that, then the Holy Spirit comes 
and you receive the anointing, they call it. Now, where we disagree is, we say, no, it is absolutely necessary that the moment you got saved, every, every person who gets saved receives the Holy Spirit and is baptized by that Holy Spirit then and never again. It doesn't have to be repeated because he takes up residence inside you. And so we have a real disagreement with our Pentecostal friends over that. Uh, basically because I think they don't understand the nature of the church in the New Testament. So you have been anointed. <laughs> you, you are the anointed uh, of God in that sense. Now, that, does that make you Christ? No. <laughs> Let me give you a third word. Not only do we have creo and chrisma, we have Christos. So now, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S, makes it a noun in that language. Christos is, of course, the Christ. This means the anointed one, whereas creo means to anoint, chrisma means the anointing, but Christos means, oh, you're the one that is anointed. Now, six, 650 plus times, over 650 times, in the New Testament, Jesus is given the description of the Christos, right? And so we very easily say, Jesus Christ. And the world, not understanding these kinds of things, thinks that we mean a first and a last name. No, we mean Jesus, who is the anointed one of God. He is the Christ. You remember when Jesus was in Samaria and had the discussion with the woman at the well? who was a Samaritan, and uh, she said this in John 4, 25, the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah, now she's using the Hebrew title for it, I know that Messiah, when Messiah comes, which is called Christos, which is called Christ, when he has come, he will tell us all things, just like Isaiah and others prophesied of him. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee, am he. I am the Christos. Now again, that's blasphemy unless he is. If he's just a man saying that that's, that, that's a crime worthy of death. But if he really is, then you better fall at his feet and worship him. You better die for him, in other words. So he is the Christos, meaning he is the Christ. He is deity. So if, if Jesus is the Christ, then he is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies that said when Messiah comes, it will be God in the flesh. It will be Lord Jehovah who has come for us to redeem us. And so to claim to be that Christos, the anointed of God in that sense, uh, you know, is, is a direct claim to deity, is a direct claim to being God in the flesh. No one else can claim that anointing. You and I have received the Holy Spirit. But this anointing, to be the Christ, the anointed one, is to be God in the flesh. Now, I'm going to take one step further with a few minutes that we have left, and that is, if you take the word, we have the word Christian, so spell the word Christian, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-O-S, Christianos it would be. You are a 
Christianos, which means a follower of Christ. So he is the Christos, and you are a Christianos, a follower of that one who is Christ. And let me point out a few scriptures. First of all, Acts 11.26, where it says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So interesting, not at, not at Pentecost, not during the life of Christ. They were disciples, and there were apostles that were appointed by him. But no one used the term Christianos until the believers went up to Antioch, and when they were up there and started that church, they, the, evidently the people around them said, oh, you're, you're followers of that, that Jesus who called himself the Christ, that blasphemer who said he was the Christ, and you are a Christianos then. You're a follower. You're kind of claiming the same truth, aren't you? And they said, yeah, that's us. So, Christian has never been an easy title to wear either. And then in Acts 26, 28, Paul is for, uh, before Agrippa, King Agrippa, and he's witnessing to King Agrippa. And Agrippa famously says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christianos. I, I would be a follower of him. But I know it would cost me my job, <laughs> and it might cost me my life, and I'm not willing to give that. And how many people in this world, you know, almost, and so we sing that song, almost persuaded from that passage of Scripture. How many people are almost persuaded to be a follower of Christ, a Christianos, but they won't. Then there are three other verses where rather than just the word Christian, we have you, you are Christ, apostrophe S. You belong to Christ. For example, 1 Corinthians 3.23 says, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Okay, you are Christ, Christ apostrophe S. You belong to Christ. And Christ is God. In other words, it's kind of like you are in Christ, and then Christ is is in God, <laughs> and so you are enveloped within God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is in you. Quite a relationship, isn't it? You are Christ, and Christ is God. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. So they that are Christ, apostrophe S, will go to meet the Lord at his coming. Of course, we look forward to that. We know it as the rapture, of course. And so who will go to meet the Lord in the air? The Christianos. Who are the Christianos? Those that possess the Spirit. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ, but those who have received the Spirit of regeneration will go at the rapture. And we will be the church of Jesus Christ, his bride, actually. And then one more great verse in 2 Corinthians 10, 7 that expresses this in a few different ways. 2 Corinthians 10, 7 says, Do you look on the things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, 
apostrophe S, Christianos, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, Christianos, even so are we Christ's, Christianos. So we have the word three times in one verse. Are you a follower of Christ? Paul says, we are uh, also, of course. As a matter of fact, because he was, they are. He preached the gospel to them. So, in our study, what, what we've learned is that the chi in the, in the Greek alphabet often referred to Christ because that's the first letter of his name, Christos, from chi or X, but that we always translate it CH, that k sound. And we have the word krio, which means to anoint with oil. We have chrisma, the anointing. But we have Christos, who is the anointed one, 650 times in the New Testament. Jesus is the Christos, the Christ of God. And then a few times we are called the Christianos. We are the, we are the followers of Christ because uh, we belong to him. And in a unique way, we have been given the Holy Spirit who placed us into the body of Christ. He anointed us into the body of Christ. That's a unique thing that happens for the church. Okay, so uh, I'm going to preach next hour on that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk a little bit about how we blaspheme God and how we blaspheme Christ. And how many times do, do you hear people use the name of Jesus or Christ in a derogatory way, uh, which God takes seriously. And just imagine what this name means, what it means to say Jesus is the Christ, what it means to say Christ, the anointed one of God. There's not a holier name in all the world than that. And, uh, and even our name, Christian, is pretty special to us. And we shouldn't use it in a derogatory way anyway. So let's be careful with it, but praise God with it and thank God for all that he did in bringing us to himself through this process. All right, let's pray. Father, how we thank you for uh, understanding uh, your plan and seeing that Jesus was God in the flesh, the anointed of God, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, the coming king of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Father, we hold that name in a precious way. And, Father, thank you that you even call us your children and you call us your sons. And so, Father, we take the name Christian also uh, in a right way, in a thankful way, a humble way, but only in a proud way in the sense that we are thankful for it. And so, Father, help us to be good stewards of these truths that we have and the names that we hold. May you be glorified by it all. We'll thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for being here this morning.